Oftentimes people use machine learning and artificial intelligence interchangeably, which is, in my opinion, incorrect. AI can refer to, like you said, a bunch of if-then statements. If this is, you know, like a classic thing, it's like for a self-driving car or something. You could have some radar if you're, or uh, LIDAR. If the LIDAR detects something's on your left, turn right. It detects something on your right, turn left. That could be just coded by first principles with a bunch of if-then statements. But machine learning, rather than necessarily relying on first principles, essentially has a black box that needs to be trained. So while machine learning is AI, AI is not necessarily machine learning. And the funny thing is I've been doing AI for years because I do crowd simulation. When I create brains for crowd characters, you know, like using Massive, you know, back on Ratatouille and Wally, that was AI, but it was more like, you know, robotics, like detecting some stuff in your environment where you turn based on that. You are listening to The 21 Artist Show, a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passions. I'm talking with creators, artists, and engineers about their careers, lessons they have learned, and how to make an impact. I'm your host, Alexander Richter. I'm a technical director and coach in visual effects, animation, and games. For more content, go to 21artistshow.com. Enjoy the show. I'm currently here in sunny San Francisco, and with me is Paul Kenyak. And thank you for being here, Paul. My pleasure, man. Good to see you again. It's been a while. <laughs> it's actually been a while. 2019, actually. Our first episode on this show was with Paul. He was my first guest. If you're interested in that one, check it out. It also has a little bit of background of what it means to be a technical director at Pixar and, of course, of Paul's career. So my question would be, what happened in the last three years, basically? Well, a lot. So 2019, we're just finishing up onwards. I was the uh, crowd supervisor on that show. Um, and uh, for my personal life, uh, my wife and I bought a house right after that. So where we are right now, this is in my yard. And what I didn't expect to be doing was working from my home for, uh, for a, pretty much till now. Um, so that was unexpected, the pandemic. Um, and I guess the other thing is uh, we're remodeling, so there's been a lot of construction and such. So you you all see my backyard here, so hopefully you like it. But yes, that was pretty unexpected. In terms of my career, um, I moved from being the crowd supervisor of Onwards to uh, Turning Red. So that was um, pretty, uh, you know, pretty much doing similar stuff to what I was doing then. But one of the big things that was new is I then started working on the summer 2023 feature at the same time as supervising uh, the crowd team on Turning Red, where I was doing more work with machine learning. And that's something I can't talk about the specifics with, but later on we can talk about more general, the challenges in applying the latest machine learning research to um, computer graphics and feature film. First one, what was your process from being there to being at home? And what was the process where you, where you found out what works for you and what doesn't work or how to manage the information and the team and so on. It took a few iterations and I guess I'll talk about the ergonomics first. It might sound boring, but it's pretty relevant. I mean, <laughs> facts, super guys. relevant. We're, we're TDs, we want we facts as first. Pay attention to ergonomics. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, just had a laptop. So I just wanted a good laptop with monitor setup. My father and I, we, we constructed a desk in a way. We cut some plywood. We, you know, put it in the living room, put the monitor on, set it up, and then I realized I was too close to the monitor. Like the screen was too close. And I had to unfortunately disassemble that setup. Like we just put it together, it just didn't work uh, out. So then later I took over my wife's desk, which was actually a better setup, and um, uh, had that with the Teradici, the, uh, the PC over IP setup. And that's in the living room. 
And that's good, but it is in my living room. So there's a lot of traffic back and forth. And it was actually really annoying to take meetings in there because either I have to be on headphones to not annoy everyone else or, you know, have speakers and annoy everyone else. So I did headphones, but that really started to give me headaches after a while, just having headphones on all day, blasting that in my ears. So one of the things I did was actually create a satellite office, which is in the potting shed in the back here, which was just like a silly idea, but it was essentially the same thing as that aborted setup in the living room where the monitor was too close. I just set it up in the shed and the shed is, you know, not locked. There's no key on it or anything. So, you know, you don't want to keep anything expensive there. So I tried to keep it as much Bluetooth only. So laptop, naturally with a hub, you know, um, connected to connect the monitor. But for a keyboard and mouse, I tried doing Bluetooth only. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll have some mice too. So it's actually um, a sitting and standing set up at the same time concurrently with two monitors. And I could stand or sit depending on if I'm taking a meeting and I want to sit down or I want to really crank and stand up. And I thought it was just a gimmick, you know, the shed. But actually, I, I find it in many cases preferable to the, uh, the living room setup because, again, I can have speakers out there. I'm half in nature. You know, there's sun. There's plants around. There's something to be said about, I don't know, this psychological aspect of sort of having greenery around you when you're working. And But it's sh shaded. It's in a shed. So it's kind of a weird California office, I would say, that in no other situation than a pandemic would you feel the need to experiment with something like that. But now that I've done it, I actually recommend anyone who can swing an outdoor shed office. Um, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it. I was like, <laughs> so this is where the magic happened. You know, kind of like this, this improvised kind of thing with holes in it everywhere and i was like okay what if it rains and then you're like oh yeah it's california it's like barely rains here at all yeah i mean i take the gear in in um, november and december when we actually do get rain it rained yesterday yeah it did rain <laughs> but the thing is it's like that really just got this chair wet which i'm sitting in now and dealing <laughs> yeah. with and it got um i have a, a mat because i do a standing thing i often actually work just you know in socks or barefoot actually you know when the weather's warm so I have a little like um, rubber cushion mat. And when it rains, that thing just soaks up the water. So I kind of put that off to the side. But yeah, it's, um, who would have thought? So that was, I would say, you know, version 3.0 of my office there was the shed. And I can go back and forth between indoors and the shed. And, um, and then finally, we are starting to reintegrate uh, folks going back to the office. So I have my proper office again. I have a number of setups. So ergonomically, I have choices now, whereas before it was just one office. So that, that's been kind of interesting to explore that. Team-wise, you know, it's been tricky, but I've kind of learned fewer meetings. I mean, we've always known this, but if you're in meetings all day, it's just kind of it really gets to you. You just talk about what you need to do without actually doing it. So I think it's always been finding a balance. The big problem though is a little bit of scope creep because I'm not hourly, I'm salaried. Whether I work eight hours or 20 hours, it's the same. So there's always a temptation to put in more hours. And early in the pandemic, it really didn't creep that much. But now as I've been going further, I'm noticing that tendency for work to kind of haunt you a little bit and follow you beyond the eight hour work day. What changed from the early to, to now and like what motiv like motivates you or pushes you a little bit to mo put more time in? There's definitely not having your setup at home meant that when you left the office, 
you know, com oh. computers are rendering. You're not checking. I mean, I did have ways to check a render. You know, uh, like I said, the laptop VNC thing was always a temptation. And also there was like a dinner at seven. I, I would bike home. So I'd always like, you know, leave work right around 6.15, bike, get there for seven, work was done sort of a thing. So kind of a separation and specific like timelines where, you know, have to be at seven, you cannot work because you're at home. It will be like a struggle back to go go back. Okay, so but but what what changed between beginning and uh, now of the pandemic then? Yeah, I guess it's just uh, because it's there because it's possible. You know, once you have the power, you start using the power. Mm. Um, now I tried to mitigate it by like one thing I always found challenging um, working from the office is finding times to exercise. I am not a morning person. I, I know some people are really good about going to the gym before work. I, I just can't. But actually after work, I'm down to go for a jog and such. So what, what I've been doing is um, just calling it at 5.30 and going for a run and showering up prior to dinner, kind of a thing like that. And then with the time I lost, spending maybe an hour later. And what's weird is because, you know, rendering sets your schedule in many ways. So if you have those almost breaks in the day where you kick off a render at 5, 5.30, you know, do your jog, take a shower, have dinner, watch an episode of Stranger Things or something. By the time you're back, you've got a, a you know, that's a serious amount of time for some rendering, in which case, oh, are the renders good? You need to change something, kick off another thing. So I think everyone has gotten an extra render iteration. Mm, yeah, I mean, the most typical hour, lunchtime. Yeah. And but lunch, maybe. you know, lunch is for a quick render, but you know, sure. as many of us know, it's not just the render, it's the simulation you need to run prior to the render and then kick off the render and things like that. You know, there's often a number of tasks, so you can kind of get in there to hit the button. Yeah. to keep the machines working for you. Yeah, since I'm, I'm more in, on the lighting department and similar, uh, my renders are not as long as your special simulation. I don't have to do that. So, uh, and uh, since I'm a TD, I often get prioritized a little bit because I'm sometimes checking things or whatever. And so lunchtime mostly works, especially if you if you do the Spanish. Oh man, oh yeah, you have also like two hours lunchtime generally, aren't you? Well, no, it's an hour is the cultural norm but everyone knows that 1 p.m meetings people aren't typically on time okay. for <laughs> so usually you know noon to two you try to keep free okay. but one to two often gets booked yeah because uh, that was something i learned in, in in working in france and then spanish or stuff like that this has this like uh 12 to 2 oh, or so something like render, that yeah. and it's kind <laughs> of nice because then you can do basically this kind of renders two hours is mostly enough for for a checking or something like that and the big one you do in the evening basically so it's kind of nice to to do that and for me uh, since i'm doing kind of a intermediate fasting thing so i actually only eat at dinner um, basically oh, wow. for me it became also great for going to the gym during lunch Nice. So because then you, you're like still energized. I'm sometimes tired after work. So, so, so for me, it's probably the opposite side every morning or uh, lunchtime. But lunchtime was always good. And it's kind of like what you basically described is um, you have your, your, your time. What else would you do? You know, you have lunchtime. You don't do lunch. What else would you do? So you go to the gym. Same thing here is like if you if you have a specific time where your wife's waiting or something like that, then you're like, of course, like, you know, what, should, what else should I do? Or you have like 530, you do you do your set up your renders. That's your thing that you always do and then go for a jog. It's kind of like, sure, I will do that. Like what else? So I think like the, ma the, the, the magic trick that you basically use is to have a, a, uh, like a good reason to stop, which is basically repeats every day, something like that, going specific things that you cannot easily just say by like, ah, you know what, I skipped that and continue because this is kind of 
you know, has to be finished tomorrow. It's more like, okay, uh, I have to because people are waiting or something like that. So you kind of set up a little bit your, uh, your situation so you are a little bit forced to stop working. Yeah. Uh, but what changed now? You know, some of it is just um, towards the latter half of any production. Mm. You know, you get some crazy deadlines. And if you have the iterations in the evening, you use them. You make sure the computers are rendering at all. And not everything lines up with the human 24-hour schedule. So I'm never like doing things like waking up at 3 a.m. to check a render. But I am constantly making use of our, you know, our remote reason, which is a great luxury. The fact that we have this many computers that we can run um, renders and simulations and experiments on in parallel. But it does mean you're kind of constantly checking the next results to, to kick off the next iteration and things. The typical problem uh, that aspired nowadays more for for like people like you who are like um, not freelancer but like part of the company um, compared to independent people. For example, at the moment I'm doing independent work, you know, masterclass and coaching, and so there's like a, a scope creep, basically as you yep. described. You know, there's there's there is no hours. You can work one hour, you can work zero hours, you can work 20 hours a day. There is no, no limit. So uh, I had to kind of handle that. And now it's a little bit also on your side. We, mm -hmm. we, we gave it back to you because you are basically the same thing. Of course, you will not be paid more or something like that. But um, there's an enticement. Maybe you're interested in what you're doing. Maybe you don't want to, like, to leave half-finished work for the day because the team is waiting or there's kind of a yeah. pits up stress. So basically what the pandemic did and remote work did a little bit is brought the um, people who are working in companies more into a freelance independent situation where they kind of have more time control mm -hmm. to degree of positive. So maybe you can also like be flexible, go to a doctor, go shopping, go for a jog in the middle of the day. But also the opposite side where you can like overwork, where you're like, okay, I can access. There is no barricade like going to work again, you know, traveling or whatever. It's basically like just opening my laptop, logging in, and I'm I'm there. And um, especially if you feel this end of the project feeling or there's something very urgent going on, I feel like there the separation now becomes a bigger task for someone who is employed now compared yeah. to before. I mean, that's one of the reasons actually. Um holidays are so great because everyone takes the same day off so no one's bugging each other you know um and whereas when you take your own vacation day you know a personal vacation day that no one else is taking no matter what you put for your status you know you're still getting pinged on all these you know emails and slack messages and stuff so um i almost think uh because of the temptation of working from home we need fewer vacation days and more holidays <laughs> that everyone is all off together. I think that that can help, uh, you know, really, yeah, prevent work from haunting you over your break. So, because generally, it's I think it's two weeks in the U.S. It's a typical number. I think something like yeah. that. Pixar might be better, but I, again, I don't want to be quoted on that. Um, but you know, like we all have a number of vacation days we accrue, and we can use sort of at our discretion, which is great. We have the flexibility. But when it's so asynchronized, I'm finding that when I take a vacation day, it's uh, still getting a lot of communication that I'd uh, wish would go away. But um, but yeah, anytime there's like a nice holiday, oh, it's really peaceful. I mean, <laughs> uh, coming from Europe and Germany, especially, uh, like we have like around 25, 30 vacation days uh, generally, and 
Uh, I think we have sometimes, I think we have more holidays actually, because we have still a lot of Christian holidays in there, um, over like spread over the year. So I feel at least there's a lot of them. And um, I still think uh, I would rather work less actually. So I'm, I'm, I actually think very on the opposite side because I think it's, it's because we, as you mentioned, basically we are to some degree more productive. Um, but I think also it takes, from my opinion, like more of a toll mm -hmm. of us, like mentally. Um, so I would rather uh, see like actually more vacation days. So you literally separate yourself from the work where you don't have calls, no one writes you emails or you ignore them. And at the same time, like maybe work six hours a day, but like full, fully focused because there's less, less of like, you know, distraction. You can time things better by like, you know, you just shoot out the render, close your laptop, do your house chores and basically time maybe the day a little bit different if possible. And uh, what's your opinion on that one compared to, because as you said, you are more productive at the end of the day. As long as you make the vacation a real vacation. That's yes, the, that's of course. The, that's the thing. It's like uh, I've... um. I don't think uh, we have made that. It's been hard to make it a real, like, you know, again, with all the communication and oh, really? like temptation just to like put meetings on no matter what your status is, it's hard to get away even when you take a vacation. I mean, it, it works, but like, I kind of almost, I mean, this is not company policy or anything, but were I to create a new policy, one thing that I think would be interesting is sort of how like uh, companies like Google and such have had your your 10% or one day a month or something like that where you can work on your own thing. I almost think there should be a day or two a month where there's no meetings and no slack. So if you want to take a vacation day on one of those days, it's a really good day to like kind of, you know, zip away. Or if you want to just be ultra productive on that day, you know, go for it. I, it's a, and I know this is a really hard thing to do, um, but like I, I kind of almost think having like some, safe zones for taking vacation days and such yes. like that, where where um, where there's less of a chance there'll be accidental communication. Which basically comes back to your holidays uh, yes. kind of suggestion. But yeah, I totally agree. I think like uh, whatever the, the kind of way is, it should be uh, I'm off mm -hmm. completely. Like I ever have holidays or as you said, like no meeting days or whatever, but it's basically this separation of being online, kind of, you know, there's kind of a little bit of social media element in there. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of being online, which is, there's something where you just don't close the door in your mind. Yeah. And yeah, to be fair, um, I, sometimes maybe the way I'm speaking, it's acting like people are bugging me. It's probably more me than them, you know, it's... Uh... And I think that's why it's so important to have like a, at least a room to work not in your living room, not yep. in your bed, uh, having a set yeah. or uh, like renting shows. a room or whatever. I think it's kind of it's kind of important, even if it is like from home. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's kind of important to separate that, you know, where you play and where you work, basically, and just to have this frame of mind um, difference. And uh, yeah, I think that is the most important thing. Or at least from the point that you just made uh, in terms of like missing that. For me personally, it was actually the interaction. I kind of missed that one. The popping, like randomly popping to someone's desk, like having a, a small talk and then often figuring out things that maybe are not specifically mentioned that, you know, people are sometimes like don't even notice it in a meeting or then they don't think it's it's important. But if you just talk with him randomly at their table, it's like, oh, what are you doing now? Oh, I just have this small thing that I'm going trying to make, make happen. And like, oh, this is actually not small. Let me check, you know? So I think that is something that I miss is uh, 
actually finding things that I would casually find in real life and in person and also just having this in-person coffee break situation where like literally I'm not sure if you do that too is kind of like every few hours I just like put a mark you have a coffee body oh, yeah. most of the time or a water body or something you go out to the to the balcony or whatever and then just like yeah no it's definitely I always in Pixar, you know, the, the atrium is sort of the central location where yeah. uh, there's a kitchen and everything. Which sadly so, we couldn't see today because it was closed. That was uh, one of the things that we tried to do is record at, at the studio, but... Next time. Next, next time. time. So, guys, next time, season four, time. five, six, seven, <laughs> one of them. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, but we would go, I always go there to get some tea or coffee or something. And inevitably you bump into someone, catch up, find something, learn something new. Um, like one thing that just occurred to me is, um, like I said, I, I worked on uh, you know, Onwards, then to Turning Red, and now I'm on the 2023 film. I missed Lightyear completely. I have no idea <laughs> what happened on that show. I wasn't. I was, I, I've heard about oh, they're using all of the render farm tonight or something like that. But you know, I'm really out of touch with the developments on Lightyear, and that's something I would have known more about and probably learned from. Yeah. You know, by being in person and bumping into people who worked on the film. I have even a crazier story. I worked on support uh, at Weta on a, on a project, and um, it was it's always as you know it's like kind of like uh, free short letters or something. So you actually most of the time don't even know the name of the of the show. It's like kind of like acronymed or something like that. And I was working there, and I had like some support tickets um, to do that. And uh, since I did pipeline TD work, I actually. I don't think I really opened my or something or definitely didn't really saw specific assets. And I finished that and then half a year later, I get a credit for a movie I didn't know I worked on. Wow. So because That's... because no no one like we were, there were no introduction. It was literally like a ticket in there. You open the ticket, you look at the problem, you maybe open I, I give Maya, what a something. Credit, um, you know, for giving you credit, you know, that they kept track that you did the work. All the same, that is kind of spooky. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the weirdest thing. But I, I know it will be different if I would be live there. I, I would probably pick up what kind of project floating around. I would pick up more that like I'm working on that one because I just go to the department that is working on that asking a question compared to now writing a comment or something because I always rather especially if it's something more explanatory or rather go pump like you know just look yeah, yeah. it's busy and then ask a question and write a long comment to try to get to the bottom of it and so I know I would if I would do it, like be live there I'm pretty sure I would have known what product <laughs> this is but that was actually the situation a little bit to yours where I actually didn't know and then later found out oh I was on that project I didn't know that Wow. So that can happen too. So that is the level. And I mean, that's also the level of pipeline because if you do pipeline work, you actually, it doesn't really matter what project it is. It, it's an export is an export. Yeah. If you work on Avatar, Shang-Chi or uh, Lightyear, it, like, you know, it's the same thing. Crazy story, man. Well, I'm glad you got credit. <laughs> what would be like for you, the future of, of work, like it's in Pixar or general, um, what would you wish how things would be working. Well, I love the idea of flexibility. You know, everyone's circumstances are different and the that we can accommodate people's different circumstances are great. Me personally, I would like to go back to the office a little more often. You know, I, I, I kinda 50-50 as a heuristic, though it's a five day week, you know, it's either three days in, two working from home or vice versa, depending on where I'm at in the project. You know, that, that to me 
seems appealing. I think uh, meetings and reviews now can be very different. I think they'll always sort of have a hybrid component, which will make recording and documenting things easier. But I mean, you can do a live meeting and still record. I think that is a really yeah, big exactly. benefit. That's what, that's what I mean by hybrid. Um, we, we'll have these things called like crash carts that are like, you know, essentially monitors on carts with the microphone that can be in the room. Um, and, you know, some meetings will lend themselves more to that than others. The thing that I'm actually really excited about is the remote uh, review options we have now. The fact that we can all be looking at the same media, but some people can be at home, some people can be in the room, and anyone can drive and change what media is being presented. For so long, it had to be the person in the review room at the one computer yeah. to control everything. I love that people can now jump in now and show what they're thinking in a meeting. It really limits the, oh, I'll show that later when I have time to get back at my desk. I love the idea of um, hybrid reviews in particular. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm also looking forward to meetings in person that are just more chill. Um, but yeah, to me, I think it, it's sort of, we're going to take a leap forward in making meetings be easily, more easily hybrid and recordable. Yeah, we, we talked about that with Andrew Schlossel from Framestore. He's now at Netflix that they had at Framestore, they had like basically rooms for that, you know, oh, basically yeah. like education rooms, which now had this benefit of like you have, everyone has a monitor if they want to, um, there are recordings and microphones everywhere. Everything will be like kind of combined. So you have a simple button to click and everything will be recorded, whatever is currently running. And I think that is something that will come more often is kind of to create this hybrid because I think a meeting personally, I think generally should be a person. If it's someone who can join from outside because they're traveling or whatever, that's cool too. But I generally think in person is the best way, but adding this new learning experience of documenting and recording more and just using the, the, the thing more digitally, I think that's a really good way. It's like you do it in person, but you still record the people's voices, you still record the screen grab and maybe even the, the room and stuff like that. And then you basically can rewatch it if necessary, if you missed it or uh, you can reuse it, put it in, in a wiki somewhere because it was about a tool and you explaining how it works. So it's like, you don't have to, to do an extra tutorial, you just do it live, have the mentality. And so I think that is a really good, Good way. So you would basically still like do a, a mix of remote or uh, in person, or would you rather go in person and just have this hybrid of recording in there? I would say for formal reviews, um, hybrid is excellent, um, so that everyone can share it. If it's informal, doesn't need to be recorded. Could yeah. be in person, you know. So I actually think the more formal processes are better. That said, as soon as you get to the point where you're watching stuff on the big screen you know, for final QC and stuff on stuff, you got to get back in the theater, especially if it's a lot of media. You know, if you're talking about like a 10 or more minutes of footage, sure. it, it, it's worth getting people in a room like that. But I feel like for departmental reviews, where everyone is showing a shot or two, you know, just from all over the place at all different stages, that that's the perfect situation for hybrid. But if it's informal, yeah, just meet informally. And if it's like final QC, go in the theater so you can see what's up. Yeah, I think should, we also need to counter a little bit this over-information and over-recording and over-preserving. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like, you were there, you know, you could ask questions. Uh, everything was for everyone the same way, you know, the same frame rate and stuff like that. You were live, you know, and something like that. So I think it's, it's even going back to more in person and something like that. We, we should be careful not to overcompensate again and, you know, like, as you're like, oh, I record everything. Yeah. Make everything because at the end of the day, 
we are still in the same problem of we still have a lot of data to handle and we have to be live there, you know, be at the same time in the same room and stuff like that. So I think it, 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 it opened up this perspective of recording things and preserving things much more than before. Um, which is awesome. I think we just need to learn how to, when to figure it out as like, as we said, basically formal or informal maybe, kind of like, oh, this is a formal thing, this is educational, just record it. This is just kind of like keeping things up, everyone's in the room, mm -hmm. why record basically? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like, oh, who watches that? No, yeah. <laughs> no one randomly opens like a daily and like, oh, I would like to, to know what Paul said on daily uh, 27 or something like that of 2022. No, I would say it's more like technical demos is the stuff that people actually search for, like yes. how to do X, you know? Actually, yes, that's something actually that, that you do probably do something like that, like every month or something uh, where we did like um, presentations of new tools or uh, something really cool that they were working on. So independent of your department, you can just join in and see like, okay, cool. And sometimes it's also kind of uh, inspires people, you know, to like, oh, I would like to work on that or I have something maybe that could be combined with that. And I think that was a really nice thing where I feel like, yeah, that should be recorded basically to so people can watch yeah. it. Actually, we used to do that, you know, even well before the pandemic, we had this thing called Tools Weeklies where our software engineering team, people would give demos of the latest features they're creating and that was always recorded. And we would, so that actually that gave us a little bit of a, a leg up um, with the pandemics that Pixar already had mechanisms for essentially doing live streams of every review room and recording those live streams. So that, that was tech that already existed that then just became more, all the more important. Um, so, and that's actually just using um, uh, OBS Studio, uh, which people use for live streaming. It's uh, on Linux as well as Windows and Mac. So, um, you know, it's open, it's open source, right? Open broadcast. Definitely free, I'm not yeah. sure if it's open source. But all the same, it's like, you know, that's what we use. So we just have a wrapper command. I run OBS wrapper, boom, I'm streaming from a Linux box. And then anyone could access that within the studio from just a web browser. Welcome to our short mid-episode coffee break. If you love the content and would like to have a successful career in the film or games industry yourself, check out my website 21artistshow.com. There you can find helpful articles, masterclasses and coaching opportunities that help dozens of my students to bring their profession to the next level. That's all. Check out 21artistshow.com and share the podcast with cool people you know. Let's continue with the episode. One of the things that you picked up in the last, uh, like basically during the pandemic, is uh, you kind of branched out a little bit into different areas now. So we talked about it, like machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of like, let, let's first establish a thing is like, what exactly is machine learning? Because it's like, VR, okay, VR is probably easier, but like a lot of things thrown around, people don't really know what it means. It only means it's great. It is the future and it will help every, solve every problem in the world. Uh, but most people don't really actually know what it actually is. So let's establish first, what is machine learning exactly? And then I would like to know what kind of purpose did you find for it? Totally, yeah. Machine learning um, you know, has a fairly long history. It just became very trendy to talk about and a specific type of machine learning has started to dominate. So, you know, as long as I've been in uh, computer graphics, which, you know, I, I started full-time in like 2005, I remember, you know, even back in SIGGRAPH 2003, there were papers that were doing 
some sort of operation where you had example data, example input, example output. You have to learn the black box that turns the input to the output. So that could be anything like, you know, start with, you know, character animation to make it more jiggly or something. And like try to learn the black box that gives you, you know, soft body dynamics or something. So this stuff has been around for a while. What started happening though, I don't know, like around, you know, the mid 2010s is that one, at least from what I can tell, one type of machine learning became dominant, which was using neural networks. That wasn't always the case. I remember there was things called support vector machines and all, all these other things that were, were, were things that would more or less be that black box that uses lots of examples of input and output and finds that relation. But then all of a sudden neural nets started to dominate. And then we started to get good libraries and APIs so that you didn't have to be a PhD student or a postdoc researcher to start doing this. The, um, the tools out there were such that any programmer could start experimenting, which all of a sudden meant there was a lot more experimentation. And uh, a lot of these APIs made really good use of GPUs. Um, and the benefit of using a GPU was significant. So all of a sudden, you know, having a, a, a nice fancy GPU and knowing a bit of programming meant you could actually start pushing the state of the art in a lot of unsolved problems. So I would say starting around 2015, if you look at all the SIGGRAPH papers, more and more machine learning became the tool used to solve a new unsolved problem before, you know, that used to, you know, moving the needle in the state of the art. So really my interest in machine learning is mostly just been continuing an interest I've always had which is trying to get the latest computer graphics research into production. So what is what is machine learning exactly? Okay, well, I didn't even that, answer the that question. That is the first question. All right. But we got some history here. So. Yeah, I gave you a little background. So, I mean, machine learning is where you have a bunch of example inputs to a process and a bunch of example outputs. And you train a black box to be able to take those inputs and create those same outputs, but also generalize to new inputs it's never seen before. So this could be for almost anything you could think of, um, you know, focusing on computer graphics. It could be, you know, rotoscoping out uh, Alexander Richter's face from footage. You know, you could have examples of here's, here, here's your face, here, here's a roto mat where, you know, you've gone frame by frame and now you've trained a neural network to basically find your face in every frame, just from lots of inputs and outputs examples. So then- In different environments. And exactly, different... it has to generalize to new scenes. Well, maybe it's Alex in the dark. Maybe it's Alex, you know, you know, on a beach or something. A lot of the uh, challenges of the field has been to make sure you can do it on the least amount of input necessary, because that's labor intensive. Um, and also to generalize better to newer situations. Um, and. Uh, any kind of process where you have a lot of input and output could be, uh, you can use machine learning for. That said, most of the research to this point has really focused on 2D images. Much of what I'm interested, however, is on um, things like character animation data, because I work in crowds, uh, cloth and hair simulation, as well as volumetric data and things like that. So much of what we're doing in computer graphics is take all these machine learning papers that were very specific to 2D images and try to figure out how to make them work with the, the kind of data that we work in CG. So guys, uh, machine learning is not a bunch of if statements because that's something I sometimes see. It's like, ooh, okay, I have a, or, or like a, a basically two libraries of you know uh, action reaction, right. which is basically in a way an if statement. Uh, so if this, then this, 
it doesn't matter if even if it's a million of them, it's still not machine learning because if it's just a connection, a clear connection between this happens and this is the result, then it's basically uh, typical programming or whatever you want to data compared to reaction. Machine learning is the part, as you mentioned, is to interpretate the data and create something new. For example, in this case, you've mentioned, um, we record in this situation, my face, uh, hundreds of thousands of frames. So it sees me from every angle and now I'm somebody somewhere else and it still figures out without someone's input basically in a good way that you say like, oh, this is basically as someone, a professional would do that. That would be a machine learning example. And it's a good contrast you made between like a bunch of if then statements versus a neural network. Um, you know, oftentimes people use machine learning and artificial intelligence interchangeably, which is in my opinion, uh, incorrect. It you is know, not. Yeah, AI can refer to, like you said, a bunch of if-then statements. If this is, you know, like a classic thing, it's like for a self-driving car or something. You could have some radar if you're, or uh, LIDAR. If the LIDAR detects something's on your left, turn right. If it detects something on your right, turn left. That could be just coded by first principles with a bunch of if-then statements. But machine learning, rather than necessarily relying on first principles, essentially has a black box that needs to be trained. So while machine learning is AI, AI is not necessarily machine learning. And the funny thing is I've been doing AI for years because I do crowd simulation. When I create brains for crowd characters, you know, like using Massive, you know, back on Ratatouille and Wally, that was AI, but it was more like, you know, robotics, like detecting some stuff on your, you know, in your environment where you turn based on that. Now I'm still doing AI, you know, in terms of machine learning, but it's totally different. So even though I've been doing AI for years, I've really only been doing ML since maybe about 2015 or so. Let's go to a practical example where you use it basically. So what motivated you um, to start it? And what was the journey to, to use it? Well, I guess crowds is a good place to start because, you know, um, again, well before neural nets were the thing, I remember seeing a lot of SIGGRAPH papers using things called uh, motion graphs that would automatically create transitions between two clips of animation that had different start and end poses. So for a crowd artist, that is an amazing tool because creating transitions between clips is, you know, really labor intense. Especially realistic. <laughs> it's not it, like a straight line transition, yeah. basically. So, so, you know, motion graphs turned me on to this research, but it was still like very limited into what motions it could transition between and also how reactive it was. You know, it wouldn't do it on a dime. It would take some time to transition. Um, then I remember in 2013, there was a paper out of Stanford. Um, I think Sergey Levine was the author, and it talked about using what they called support vector machines, which is a machine learning technique, not using uh, neural networks, but still ML. And I remember they got really good quick transitions and they posted their code online, which was not very common for a while. So I downloaded that code and I got it working on some, uh, um, some animations of dogs running from from up. You know, we had a lot of those dogs that were chasing uh, Carl, you know, through that uh, cave. So I used some of that and I was able to get an instant transition between um, running forward and turning and other things using this. And I was just so happy that I was able to get that working, but it was su such complicated code. It was a one-off thing. I was just amazed that I got the code running and it, I just kind of put it down. It's like a good proof of concept that, oh, there, there's something here. We can avoid needing transitions. And then um, there was a newer technique that uh, people started using neural networks for that got even better transitions. Uh, I think there's a, a paper called Phase Function Neural Networks that had this uh, character running over rocky terrain 
That was the other thing is it wasn't just transitions between actions. It was characters that were adapting to the terrain. So basically with this typical iterations thing where you do they run like 100 times? You actually use mocap data as input. Yeah. So they would actually have humans walking over random bits of you know boxes and, and, and things like that. And then they would use that data and they would have you know the, the CG essentially matched move versions of those physical obstacles. So yeah, they had the example data and then it was able to generalize to arbitrary height maps. So for video games, this was actually amazing. For crowds and feature films, it's still a little bit, you don't want to spend all that time gathering data, you know? So I would say this isn't a slam dunk right now, but it got me interested. That said, along with the actual crowd motion, a big one is uh, crowd garment animation. It's really expensive to run cloth sims on every character in the shot. We often have rig cloth, for crowd characters that at a certain distance is okay, but it's not great for things like skirts. You know, you got tearing. And um, it just, again, it looks looks like a video. I don't want to disparage video games. Video games are amazing. You know, <laughs> but I mean, video games are cheating. That's, yeah, that's yeah. how video games work. We just had uh, also, I talked with Eric Smith. He was working in video games and we compared what difference between video games and visual effects is, besides like how to work and stuff, is like video games are always on the cheating side because they yeah. are, have to be real time. So they have to bake shadows. They have to bake lights sometimes. Now it gets closer to each other, but they're kind of like always need to cheat yeah. because they don't have the power. And crowds is very similar. What's good for video games is good for crowds typically. Because if it scales for, um, you know, 60 frames a second, chances are you can use it on hundreds Real of seconds. Real time 60 Exactly. <laughs> so there's a whole lot of um, back and forth between crowds in the game industry. And um, yeah, so I was looking for machine learning for cloth. And, you, and intuitively it kind of makes sense. You have the ground truth, character skeleton, how it's moving over time. An example of the cloth can you use that skeleton motion over time to predict what the cloth should do without needing to do body cloth or cloth cloth collision detection. Um, there was actually some good work out of Disney Research on this. That actually goes back to like 2010, 2011 by uh, Leonid Siegel. Again, wasn't necessarily using uh, neural networks at that point, but was showing promising results. So actually that's one of the things that got me really involved was trying to take that paper from like 2010, 2011 and using modern neural net technology and working with Disney research. And much of what I was doing was not actually creating the neural networks, but gathering the data. That's good input and output examples. And there's been some real strides since that, but there's no slam dunk yet. There's some great examples. Um, actually, uh, Unreal Engine 5 has some of this technology in it. So you use examples of cloth to essentially be able to create a, um, a neural net version that can at least do wrinkles, maybe not secondary motion. Um, so it's getting there, but I would say there's still not a slam dunk thing yet. Um, there's a lot of issues with this technology creating intersections in characters, needing too much data, and also creating the wrong number of wrinkles. You know, a lot of what a simulation artist does is art direct. You know, oh, that's too wrinkly, that's too coarse. Oh, this is, you know, needs to be more damped. Especially in animation where, yeah. where you have the creativity. You know, in visual effects, it's more like, is that real? Does that yeah. look real? And animation is like, who cares? It has to work with the shot, with the environment. You don't want to spend all, by the time you've got it working for a single character, you know, you could have done a brute force. You know, whether it's that trade-off between creating that model that generalized. So you really need something that generalizes yeah. to make it practical for, for our industry.
you basically started to to like explore this for cloth specifically so for yeah, the cloth for crowds cloth uh, for crowds which is basically let's like put it into play it's like compared to cloth for the main character it's less complex right yeah and it's um ideally you want it to be intersection free and to have the right style but you know for instance you're not going to have one character grabbing another character by the shirt. So basically there's like elements you just remove when you do crowds. Yeah, we really need locomotion without self-intersection and wrinkles is great, secondary motion even better. Okay. And one of the cool things is um, often machine learning doesn't need the full character rig present. All you need are those joint angles. The legs or whatever. So that's what a crowd simulation caches so because normally you have to load all the main character like the characters in their full rig complexity to run a cloth sim whereas with ml you can just take joint angles and just the rest pose and then infer you know what the garment should be doing. that's the holy grail and they're getting there if you look at um you know research at sigraph every year they're pushing the we're pushing the envelope closer in, in this kind of thing the question would be also, because I think that's something, even if it's overhyped, as always, kind of machine learning at the moment, and it's like, it's not there. Same thing, like, I just had with Hugo Guerra about uh, Unreal compositing or something like that, you know, real-time compositing instead of, like, using Nuke or something. It's not there. Uh, it's always kind of promised, but it takes much longer to even close to be arrived. Um, same thing with machine learning, I feel like. But it's, I think it's still something which uh, is interesting to explore uh, for the future, or maybe you find a smaller case which makes totally sense in terms of how much work you put in to how much result you get out, because that is the biggest problem, yeah. I think, at the moment. So how did you approach of the learning part of that, uh, that you understood how to work with it, how, that you learned, understood how, how to integrate that actually, you know, programming-wise and using the APIs-wise? Well, yeah, there is a degree of um, comfort that you need to develop in getting open source GitHub repos to build in the environment you're working. That is actually, oh, <laughs> I think everyone who tried USD, because this is, I think, the most famous at the moment as an open source in the visual effects animation industry, USD, that is challenging sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and, and that is part of that open source community um, is USD. And, um, you know, it does take some comfort to get used to cloning a repo and building it. And I actually found it was very interesting because sometimes where you work is more challenging than actually having a personal computer. So it is good to be familiar with how to build open source repos in your work environment, but also on your personal machines. And it's worth having a Windows machine, a Linux machine, and a Mac machine to see if one of them will work for whatever <laughs> repo. Because oftentimes with machine learning, you really just want to like get the thing that's been posted working to see if it's any good, yeah. you know? And for that, you just need an answer. It doesn't have to be in the work environment. It doesn't have to be on a Windows box. Just get some environment working where you can build that repo, you can run it to see if it's worth your time. It's funny that you mentioned that. I actually remember um, for my research as a TD in, in the Film Academy, I actually did, I think we talked even about it. I, I did um, USD implementation for Maya that was, before it was like oh, that was, was alpha, that the, yeah, yeah, alpha yeah. version. It was already online or something like that. And we were, I think we were even talking about if I can get like the newest version. So I get like, you know, the bug fixes and stuff. And I couldn't make it, made it work because the first thing I didn't have as much experience with the whole process, you know, especially dependencies and stuff like that. There was definitely also an operation system problem for me where I like had a problem just 
to get it running yeah. on this operation system. Well, the good news is with USD, it's gotten better in that finally, um, Pixar has turned ownership of the third, what we call third-party plugins. But you know, essentially, all the DCCs own their own plugins now. So Autodesk is maintaining the Autodesk USD importer. Side Effects is maintaining Side Effects. So now, if you get Maya 2022. You just import the USD file. No, you do not have to build the code anymore. But that's <laughs> the difference to compare to to machine learning now. Machine learning is not implemented yeah, yet, you, so you, need to you have to do this step. And yep. uh, yeah, I think so. I think that is a great tip, actually. I think the first step, if you want to go into this direction, because the biggest problem I noticed, training TDEs, uh, software developer, or also going into the industry, is is just jumping, like over jumping uh, hurdles. You know. Mm -hmm. So I think what you mentioned is perfect. It actually. Um, before going into actual machine learning, instead of trying to, you know, jump instantly into that, I think the first step is like being comfortable with open source, yeah. being comfortable with building uh, like scripts and building uh, software and stuff like that. And just starting with the research there is like, how do I use open source software? How do I build software? So, um, and if you do that step, then you can move on to the next, because I feel like this is a big problem because if you start Oh, I want to start machine learning. I download the API or whatever. Doesn't work. Yeah. And you're already super frustrated and basically stop already before you start it. So I think it's actually a great way. So what's next? Well, in terms of recommendations on for how to get started, I would say like neural style transfer uh, papers where you take the style of an image and apply it to another image. There's been lots of research in this I think area. It's most common actually, yeah. like for Nuke, I saw plugins. And there's plenty of GitHub repos. So just Google something that looks nice. You'll find one of them will work, I guarantee, if you, if you look hard enough. So I feel like that's a good place to start. By the way, shout out to Hashem for his uh, stylized Nuke plugin. So he did the plugin where you basically can throw any picture in the world, uh, like Van Gogh or something like that, and basically transfers the style to, to whatever, and just a note basically. Yeah. And that's uh, awesome, awesome feed. And I think that's what, what you mentioned, 2D is actually the easiest way into machine learning at the moment. 3D is definitely yep. one dimension more, which is, makes it- Exactly, 3D meshes is another thing. So, you know, like a lot of them work on dense data super well. So like, you know, a grid of pixels. A grid of voxels actually is, uses a lot more GPU memory but it's, you know, a lot of the same code could work on that. But when you start getting with things like meshes, number of points can change, you know, between two, that all are, you know, all can throw out for a loop, you know, the connectivities, but there are papers on this. And I would say the thing to do is look at the SIGGRAPH paper. Actually, the, one of the best things are those uh, SIGGRAPH uh, fast forward videos they have every year where every researcher- Like a one minute or something? There's yeah, like exactly. one minute paper or something? Yeah, exactly, one minute paper. Look through those and you know there's some cool stuff. And these days it is almost standard now for researchers to post their code. So if there's a SIGGRAPH paper you like or think is interesting, you can get started now. So tip number two would be probably start with 2D first. It's probably a little bit easier. Yeah. If, if, you, if you find something that's interesting, I would say start with 2D, start with one of these image manipulation things or tracking things or something like that. Um, and tip number three, you would say going to like Seacraft paper. For me, I personally, uh, I did that thing. I'm not super researchy. Um, so I did a skin thing, micro displacement maps. Oh, cool! Where you have this very, very, very like so not like wrinkles, but oh, literally was that like for the uh, the Einstein. Project? Yes, yeah, it was the cool. Einstein project. So it was micro displacement maps. So it was, um, and so it's very, very detailed. But like 
learning that was actually very challenging for me personally. I was like, how even if if you're looking at it, I can't. It's easy to explain how it works. It's not super like it's not rocket science to explain, and the process is also not rocket science. But just like just if I would look at the research paper personally, oh goodness, I yeah. would be. I don't know what to do. I understand the basic stuff, but I don't even know how to take this formula and translate it into code. I'm. I, I still to this day. I yeah. tried that a few times, and I did actually do it actually um, this is actually something off-putting for yeah. me oh that's fair I unfortunately I, part of that is almost like I don't want to call it hazing but it's like part of the ac the process of getting a paper published oftentimes people start with intuitions and implement it and then later figure out the formulas that <laughs> represent what they're doing so going the other way turning the formulas into intuition is often way more difficult super hard and uh, you, you have to have basically been basically have to roll back and to understand like these formulas and these yeah. algorithms because if you don't understand them it's like super hard to like even yeah. do anything with it and, and part of that is it's weird because um i i had the i guess the advantage that i've been doing this now for almost 20 years like i remember in 2003 uh, i had a class where we had to implement the SIGGRAPH paper. So I tried to find the one with the formulas that were the ones I could understand the most. So I ended up actually picking the, um, the Steve Marshner paper on hair shading. And that was the paper where they figured out that for a lot of, uh, I would say, you know, brown and light brown hair, mm. you have a colored highlight and an uncolored highlight. One of them is bent towards the root. One of them is bent towards the tip. It's actually a very intuitive finding. You look at any shampoo commercial. My, you know, you need long, straight hair for this, but you can see that. And I remember looking at the equations. I'm like, ah, I, it's not doing it. But I'm just like, but I understand that. The logic is clear. Yeah. But I have a tangent. I have a normal. I can rotate around the norm one way. I can rotate the other way. So I just basically implemented the same thing without their equations. And that was just in a render man shader. So a lot of times with the papers, you need to look at the phenomena more than the, 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 the literal details of the equation. And then the good thing with modern papers is the implementation's already out there. And if it's good, as long as you can give it new inputs, you don't need to mess with the equations, you know, if you have a working piece of code. And machine learning, for what it's worth, it's a black box. Not even the researchers know necessarily why it's working sometimes because they've trained it. They know the things to do to make the training faster and produce better results and generalize better. But the actual details of the weights on each layer in the network, it's very few people can really look at that and know what's going on there. Yeah, so that reminds me a little bit on the on the Einstein factor that you add. There's this this formula where uh, you couldn't figure out exactly why it uh, doesn't 100% work, so you needed to add a factor. Yeah. So it works now, but it's not clear why this factor specifically it makes the difference. It's just because reality works that way, and with the factor, it reflects reality, basically. But without, it doesn't. It's yeah. like... A, we're not sure why this factor is necessary, but we needed to add it basically. So a little bit like that. So basically, uh, I'm not sure if it was now tip number three. Research, yes, um, but probably more research that um, first of all is interesting for you and is more aligned to what you do. But of course, um, the other one, it has actually the code there. And I think combined with that, that code that you kind of understand. You know, It shouldn't be just like, oh, I, I hope I will start it. 
No, I can look at it and I understand yeah. most of the stuff that is going inside of that. Yeah, not all code is equal, you know, posted online. A lot of code is bad. <laughs> yeah. like, that's the problem also, I think, with research specifically. So I'm, I'm someone who, who trained to become coding styler. That's something I teach actually in my Python Advanced course. A style is actually a chapter. And I never saw like a course focusing on style in itself. I saw books and stuff like that. And maybe like PEP 8 is in there for sure. But I never saw something really focused on that. And for me, um, this is like, essential for teamwork. Because if you have good code that is easy to read and you just don't throw things just because they're cool, you know, um, just because you are fancy and you yeah. can do it. Um, a one-liner in Python that exactly, does everything. Exactly. You know? And I agree. I, I hate and that's too a lot many of people do that. Like, stuff in there. Or yeah. the other way around is like making things super like long and complicated um, and then not refactoring or whatever. So basically, and, um, and that's a problem I, I see with research actually even more. Um, they're not programmers often. They're often researchers. Yeah. My, a friend of mine is is, is a physics uh, PhD, and he's a he's a great programmer in itself, you know. But his style is not software. Yeah, it's more like making it work, and he comes from Fortran and stuff like that, basically. I mean, to give an example of that is uh, one paper that I, I I thought had really good results is 2018 Sigraph Asia was called Intrinsic Garment Space for something something. Um, but it was uh, the titles are very long. But it did like... it did what I described to you. You take the uh, the joint angles of a character and it predicts what the cloth should do. Um, so I, I I got the code running and it ran. Credit to the researchers for doing that. Looking through the code though, it had a lot of single letter variable names. Those are really hard to search for because you're just searching for A or B or Y. And it's like, oh my God, do not use single letter variables. That is, but if you're a researcher, that actually might be the best name because if you're, again, having to do some physics, maybe even you use single, like everything's a single letter. So, like the mathematician would probably be very comfortable with single letters, but the, as a programmer, no, 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 please be a little more descriptive. Yeah. If I see an X, 4X in list, that's actually something I, I, that's one of the style things that I say, like, don't use, like, even if it's something like a simple loop, just give it a name, you know, and, and the best trick is basically, uh, if you have a list or a dictionary, it's always plural. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, singular, yeah. you know, four character in characters. Yeah, yeah. And then you loop through that, yeah. and that's the easiest way. So, it's not much work, but yeah, I think that that is that is something that you, you should be aware of if you do uh, paper uh, kind of code reading and stuff like that. Code might be more complex than you used to, and sometimes it's not your fault. It's sometimes just unnecessary complicated because the person who wrote it thinks physically maybe, or he thinks more of a, like just get to the, to the result and there are extra loops and extra stuff and more complication in there compared to someone who sits down, writes it for a company where people constantly work on the code. And so I think that's also like a little bit of a mental uh, Thing where we where we kind of say it's okay if you don't get the code exactly and if it doesn't work for you just maybe move on and find something so i think it's as, as important as finding a good topic is finding good code that you understand and if you don't understand it don't force yourself try to and for us worth um even though i recommended looking for sigraph papers and using their code um that's not going to be the best or the cleanest um if you actually want to learn machine learning from first principles there are tutorials out there specifically for teaching machine learning some of which actually are on um, these these interactive notebooks where all the code is already on the on the server. So all you're doing is entering the Python, and the training is actually happening on their side. That's perhaps the easiest to get started, but you don't want to do a real huge project because then you can't use it locally. 
you know, at your company. But in general, there are great uh, tutorials out there. The problem I find is I just don't have the time to like all of a sudden teach myself like a huge amount of ML. Really, the way I kind of did my homework in this was I had a two week vacation at the end of Incredibles 2 and before onwards. And uh, my wife was... Uh, so it was actually before our episode then. Exactly, yeah. And my wife was, you know, doing a course in grad school at uh, UCLA. So we had a... So I joined her out in Santa Monica. So I'm like, yes, I'm at the beach. But I taught myself uh, machine learning, uh, but not for CG, actually. It was for music. Oh, that's a cool thing. So, yeah. Yeah. so I, 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 I wanted to say, guys, I wanted to say, like, Stop working when you're on vacation. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this was, this was uh, not, not CG. I actually wanted to do something to predict or basically detect when a note on my guitar, when the attack happened, so that I could use that to trigger a drum. Yeah, because you're working on this modular sound uh, ways where you kind of like put an input signal and you kind of modulate. Oh, yeah, I'm always through. doing funny music stuff. Yeah, I remember and that And what I really wanted, um, you know, it's actually a lot of it for like, you know, for heavy metal, you really need the kick drum synced up with it. So I just wanted a kick drum, but naturally you might also want a synth to double your instrument. So I just thought, okay, this is a good use for machine learning because it's very simple. Audio in and kick drum out and you could annotate it. You know, you could manually line that up with the samples and surely a neural net can do it. And in two weeks, I got something that just barely worked, but it worked. But that was the last time I really did neural net design myself. And this was just a simple recurrent neural net. Since then, I've been using other people's code and modifying it and yeah. putting new input. You know, I haven't really started from scratch. I'm mostly working, and thankfully with other researchers, because really, um, this is what students are being trained in these days. So when you get someone, even if they're fresh out of school, they're probably gonna know way more about this than you. So if you're paired with a researcher that knows a lot about it, you can kind of work together. So I perfectly have, uh... You, you just mentioned like two tips and I have another one to that. So tip number four is basically uh, use what already exists instead of creating your own like neural network or machine learning library or something like that. And I really like tip number five is basically um, work on something privately. I would not recommend especially your first project or something mm -hmm. like more complex as like being this is something we need for this project, you know, having the perfect shader reaction of a fish uh, has to be whatever, or uh, the light has to be like something or whatever, or crowd. I think that would be disaster. It's like if it's like, oh, in, in two months, this has to be delivered. I'm trying to learn machine learning. Let's see if it works. I think that is definitely up for yeah. failure. Uh, and the last one, you kind of said it already, um, just added, it's like, uh, you can reach out to the uh, writer of the papers. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually they reply. I actually did that for my stuff. And a lot of them actually reply if you write a, a nice email, have a clear question, and uh, they feel like, oh, you're like implementing it or you're trying to figure it out for yourself. And often you can, they can help you with that. Or maybe they have like, oh, I have a version 2.0 I can send you. I just didn't release it now and stuff like that. So I think that is also really, you basically mentioned it pairing with the, yeah. uh, I just like, you, just like contacting them sometimes for a question is uh, actually works uh, in that industry more often than even in other parts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I actually remember I contacted um, uh, the author of the phase function neural net paper, uh, Daniel Holden, who's now at Ubisoft. And he was super responsive. And even if, you know, it was just, to answer questions on how to get his code running. It actually started a 
you know, good correspondence and friendship. Where at SIGGRAPH, I, he's always there presenting something, you know, and I sort of keeping in touch. And I was actually invited to go visit um, his uh, Ubisoft, the the machine learning uh, group they have there. And then they came to Pixar, and we had like a little exchange. So yeah, it, it, they're humans, the authors, you know. They and they they're usually really happy to talk about their work. I mean, that's the difference. Also, just you work at Pixar. They often they're not in you know famous positions or something. Often they're in university or something like that. So it's not like you know they get overwhelmed with messages or something like that. Usually, at least you know. So so I think they're also happy that some people like you know see that as uh, something maybe practical or they're interested in that. And also, if you're looking for a job, I mean these uh, these research labs often have openings. So you know, okay, you and might... remembering your your introduction into Pixar, basically. Yeah, yeah, I was in a research lab. Yeah, so. You know, and I actually, if I didn't get the job at Pixar, I was actually planning to work with uh, uh, or apply for a job at Paul Debevic's lab at USC at the time. So, um, you know, it, it's maybe a way to get an in to the industry is to, to contact the researchers. I mean, in another funny story, um, I do SIGGRAPH talks more than SIGGRAPH papers. So the, the, the abstract PDFs get posted online along with my c contact info. And um, you know, very few people ask about these papers or read about them. Like, you know, they're just kind of out there. But one time someone actually uh, like actually read, this was back on Ratatouille, my paper, and like had a whole bunch of insightful questions. Like, oh, you actually read it. And um, that helped, I, I think that helped him when he was later um, looking to get a job is the fact that he actually read the papers by the people that worked at the company. And now he's a producer at Pixar. So he sort of worked his way up from uh, student at Drexel I mean, to producer. What can I tell you? Like, just read papers and Make your shot. And reach out to Paul. He, he definitely wants to hear But no, I, I, can't, I can't just give you a job. I just, the tip is read the papers of the company you're applying to in general. You know, I mean, it's no. a. If, if it makes sense. Yeah, I'm especially given the position. We found a paper, we kind of understand the code, we maybe even reached out to the person having interaction. So we have a little bit of, of a backup situation where someone maybe can help us with through the hard parts of that. Super cool. What's next? Well, one thing I just, to elaborate on the caution you gave is like, do this on your own time. In general, if you're doing this stuff for production, try the easy solution first that doesn't involve machine learning. And part of that is because you really need to know if machine learning is actually gonna provide a benefit. And there was an example at work where the easy method, we've had a hard time beating it. And uh, this actually has to do with um, rig approximation. One of the things that's challenging is, you know, our our character rigs are custom to our proprietary software Presto. They don't run in any other software environment and they're meant for like really high quality work. They don't, um, you know, you can't run them in a game engine. You can't, um, and for crowds, they don't scale. You know, you need to do something simpler. So we have some technology that actually derives skinning weights based on a best fit approximation to the original rig. That's actually not using machine learning. It's using um, more of a brute force optimization, but for the face, we're having, we couldn't do that. We tried putting bones, you know, in the face and learning the skinning weights for the bones to approximate it. it there was sort of a quality ceiling. So they like, oh, this is a perfect thing for machine learning. You know, mesh input with the animation controls, mesh output, that's the neural net has, you know, figured it out. But we actually, you know, we're struggling to get that to be practical, but we thought, let's just do the easy thing. Let's just take the minimum control. What does the face look like? Maximum control, what does the face look like? make that a blend shape and just did that for every facial control and it looks great 
for most of our face rigs. It's not perfect. Machine learning could probably do better, but we've actually had trouble to make it look better. And that's just like, what does the mesh look like at negative 100? What does it look like 100? And this is wrong because uh, blend shapes don't combine together to create the result of what the combination of the inputs are. They're not linear necessarily, but the simple thing looked better. So always try the simple thing first before doing machine learning. Talking about press, I actually met Dirk van Gelder. Oh, very cool. Uh, at FMX, I was his uh, student uh, kind of like guide mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So he, he uh, introduced, I think it was the first time that he introduced Presto as a software to the public at the FMX a few years ago. I don't know, quite a long, like five, six, seven years ago. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting, like how is everything is so interconnected at the end of the day, suddenly someone talks, oh yeah, I know this person and then uh, know this software suddenly. Yeah, so for everyone who doesn't know Presto, it is, a, Internal software so far, I don't think it's like on the shelf for other no, people. No, no, no. I, I would never expect to buy Presto. There's no Presto.exe to install. So it's, uh, basically, basically, it's an internal animation software light. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's what we animated, and it's also you know a big portion of our pipeline. You know, like so we animate in Presto. We also rig our characters in Presto. We do layout in Presto. We do our cloth sim. And the real time aspect one one was one of the big strengths. Yeah, of Presto. so Presto is. Um, one of the key features is this execution engine. So what it can do is a rig that's defined, you know, as we have all these funny presto terms, but actions and movers and things like that, that basically, you know, take animation controls, move points around. It can all be done in a very parallelized process, which basically squeaks every little bit of performance out of your uh, CPU. That is the difference between Maya. Maya, uh, you know, the parallel thing came very late and is still very bad. And that was one of the impressive things with Presto and Dirk that the talk is like how parallel everything is. And that is where, where still like Presto is much more ahead in terms of performance to Maya because parallel is so strong in there already. Very parallel, but it also means you are restricted sometimes in what you can do. Like a lot of time game engines show like these solvers that are running as people are animating. Every frame in Presto has to be able to execute independently, mm. out of order, which restricts the type of rigging we can do. You cannot do simulation. Then. Exactly. A simula simulation requires history. There's ways to kick off an external process that runs a simulation. Yes. But this is one of the challenges we have in crowds, actually, is how to create a crowd system that doesn't need history. And there's actually quite a lot you can do. So uh, if you're curious about that, uh, we did a a, a real-time live demonstration of frame-independent crowd simulation in Presto in um, SIGGRAPH ASIA 2020. The one, in, the one that just, no, 21. I don't even know what year it is, man. We just throw it in <laughs> as a... Exactly, 2021. I did an RTL demo of that. Um, so, and it shows a little bit about how Presto works and how to get your performance from it. That said, it's pretty custom. It's a learning curve that, to, to learn it. And it's not easy... Yeah, again, you can't just do presto.exe to install it. It's it's as much a pipeline as it is a piece of software. Yeah, I would I would love to have Dirk here on the show. I think that would be interesting to talk about Presto and maybe also how different the workflow actually is, maybe into the future, which Maya and Houdini is kind of catching up in some cases. Um, would be interesting to have. Yeah. Well, Dirk actually, believe it or not, he's at NVIDIA now. Um, oh. So he has now a perspective of uh, rigging at NVIDIA because he's working on Omniverse. So that could be... I, I do recommend reaching out because he probably can, uh, yeah, awesome. give some interesting perspective on that. The thing I'd like to encourage people is like, even though it's a lot of work, it's still stuff to do. I have found 
that no matter what the field is, you can push the envelope a little further. Like wherever there's like, you know, we can't get any faster this, we can't be able to do this look. If you put the work in, you can, you can always make a contribution to the industry. And that's one of the things I find really exciting is just to know that we don't need to settle for where things are at. We can always push it further, but it's not free. You know, machine learning is magic, but it's not free. You gotta be, you gotta be able to, you know, put the time and effort into it. But I think no matter what it is, at least everything I've seen, you, you can get some really good performance boost and new looks and things like that. The things that excite me are making things faster, like with cloth simulation, making me able to generalize, you know, uh, to things that don't have full rigs, but also style transfer excites me too, to be able to get looks that we've never seen before. So the stuff you mentioned for 2D images, you know, what you can do for other domains, you know. So um, both making things faster and creating new looks with machine learning, both those things excite me. So tip number seven was, was basically um, check it out if it works simpler <laughs> without machine learning, even if you if you kind of committed to the to the part at the end of the day, it has to make sense, you know, if 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 you especially if you're thinking about a production solution. Like, does it really is necessary in terms of the production time? Maybe you can like phone it in in that way and then like you don't need machine learning and you just don't open this abyss of maybe problems. Yeah. Another thing I, I remember a friend of mine who did a PhD in physics and then he later learned machine learning for his work a little bit. He did a course in Stanford, online course, and it was a free course. Nice. So I'm not sure how good it is or whatever, but that could be also the, the uh, opposing to what you mentioned before is like, it is a real course. It's not a, some random videos online from some people. Yeah, you don't know you credibility the about there. Yeah. So it could be something like, I don't know, six, eight weeks, three months, four months or something course. And it's a real course, you know, with, with like curriculum and stuff like that. So I feel like same thing as with my master classes, I always recommend to have a, something where you have a timeline, maybe people like communicating with you, you know, um, so you are, you're, you are forced to be part of it if you sign on instead of like having some random YouTube videos or just buying a course and just throwing it in. It is actually a semester where yeah. you like sign in and you have, I think, to, to bring back. But I think it was free as far as I remember. So definitely uh, that would be interesting also to check it out. Yeah, I would say yeah, if you have the time. No. I mean, if you want to no, learn no, machine learning, you have to have the time. Yeah. I think that is, that is the biggest problem is like, don't do machine learning if it's actually like on the total side, you know, like, nah. Just we'll see if it works because it takes so much effort in the beginning, especially if you're not a researcher or you have research experience. I think it's just overwhelming in the beginning. The one uh, problem, though, with some of these courses is they're very math heavy. So if you're again, like what if it, if a long equation is going to off put you, sometimes the academic stuff, you know, you need to really almost filter out the stuff that's not necessarily relevant. That said, there's some real deep insights that these courses have that you're not gonna learn from a SIGGRAPH paper, but that you know will give you a better intuition about it. So yeah, I absolutely recommend a proper university course or an online course for this. Somewhere in between, there's a site called 3Deep Learner that a researcher from Brazil put together as kind of like a passion project that is focused actually on a lot of computer graphics applications. It's not a real course but it is sort of a, a site that kind of tries to digest SIGGRAPH papers and show you how you can do something in Maya or something like that with it. So um, it's worth checking out. I haven't looked at it for a while, but man, if I were a student these days, I would absolutely take courses in this, you know, and look at 3D Learner and stuff like that. But not a student, uh, like you said, I'm, you know, 
in production. You have to work in the NSL. Exactly, <laughs> and the time to do this is in pre-pro, yeah. and it's also good, again, to partner with researchers and TDs that might have the time, even if you yourself don't. And a lot of it is also data gathering. Even if you don't have the time to do machine learning, if you can think ahead, oh, I can gather a bunch of inputs and outputs that one day we could use for machine learning, think about it. Think about storing your data and organizing it for later use. Because I've definitely have some stuff I've been stashing away and ideas for things, for projects that I don't have time for now, but maybe in a year or two, I'll be able to take a crack at it. Perfect ending, Paul. Thank you very much for joining me here. My pleasure, it's been fun or, talking to you. I man. was joining basically you here, basically. <laughs> Thanks for coming to my workplace. <laughs> That's it with this week's episode of the 21 Artist Show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. This podcast is 100% ad-free. And to keep it that way, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find exclusive access to awesome masterclasses and coaching opportunities to work successfully in visual effects, animation, and games. Just go to 21artistshow.com. And don't forget to share it with people who would benefit from that content and tell them they're awesome. See you on the next episode. Next on the 21 Artist Show. Games are designed to be iterative. And I remember that was like a thing at EA that they would always preach was that iteration builds quality. And I, I do really believe that. I mean, in games, you try to stand something up as fast as possible. So now for me, when I'm doing my personal projects in VFX, I try to stand it up as quick as possible. Just get everything some version. You don't need, and this is what VFX is not necessarily good at, because of you said, the pipeline seems like a linear thing. You have a sketch, then you hand it to the modeler, he models it, model looks great, topography. Then they texture it, wow, what a great looking model. And it just kind of moves. Then it's in a thousand shots. You can't go back and like redesign the monster.